Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, entrepreneur in residence at Red River West, co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to episode 46 of Tech Deciphered. In this episode, we will discuss the lifelong exercise of work-life balance and whether it is possible. We will discuss mental health, physical health, how much is too much, whether it's actually possible to attain work-life balance, and as always, we will share some of our own hacks and principles. Bertrand, how much is too much? That's the question. I'm a serious believer that it depends also of which stage are you in your life, which period in your life are you. Are you still uh, quite young with a lot of energy? Are you a single parent with kids? I think depending on the stage in life, you won't physically have the same time available to devote to work. So that will have an impact on your ability to work and how much you can execute. And that can put pressure, obviously, to your capacity to endure. At the same time, obviously, if you're in your 20s, you should probably have way more time to do a lot, to learn a lot, to try to achieve a lot. And you might be able to endure it much more easily than if you were in your uh, 40s, for instance. And maybe we start with a disclaimer. Obviously, all opinions we're going to share today, we're not psychologists, we're not trained psychiatrists, we're not MDs. It's our views and based on experience we've had from managing people, our own lives, interacting with many different players at various different levels of seniority. So hopefully it is not just anecdotal, but again, we are not trained physicians, MDs, etc. So take this obviously with a grain of salt. To your point, I fully agree. There is a stage of life and it's a bit more granular, I believe, than that. It might be that once you're joining a specific company, specific organization at a specific time, you're going very aggressively to fit into the organization to understand how everything works, to balance yourself and how you interact with other people and learn a new set of skills. It might be like two years in that your role and job might be a bit different if you're more in corporate life. In startup life, as you know, it doesn't seem to go away, certainly in the first four or five years of the company. Venture capital is also an activity that classically, I think if done properly, if done with love and with gusto and with passion, it's an activity that is very encompassing. I always make the joke, I don't suffer from ADHD. I enjoy every minute of it, which probably makes sense. I fully agree with you. How much is too much? How do you know? There's the obvious warning signs, and normally the obvious warning signs are actually not internal. 
we're very poor at taking our own internal signals, sleeping badly, and a few other things that will come back in a second. Pay attention to people around you, in particular people that you respect and that have your best interests at heart. It might be family members, it might be friends, it might be colleagues, it might be your boss if you have a boss that is thoughtful about your time. Listen to them. If they're saying it seems that you're not taking enough vacation, it seems like you're not really taking time during the week to do other things, it seems like you have no other hobbies, you seem a bit glum or a little bit depressed or a little bit sad, take it to heart. If someone has told you that, always remember they've probably been thinking for it, about it for a long time. So for them to tell you this, it's already sort of something that's been going on. So then meditate on it, think about it, and step a little bit back. So the external warning signs for me would be the first way to start. Yes, that's a fair point. What you can see from outside typically could be a sign of being tired. People can see you are tired, you are barely awake, or you are too stressed out, and you might be lashing out at people as a result. So there are a lot of signs that others can see that you might not see that are signs that something is going wrong. Yes. And then to your point, Bertrand, there are some internal signals. If you're tired, you know you're tired. If you're like sighing during the day in the middle of a meeting, that should otherwise be hopefully fun. Maybe not all meetings are fun. We know that for a fact. But if you're sighing at the wrong moment of the day, you know maybe you should get more sleep. And it might be a one-off. It might be it happened that week and you're on a business trip and you're just very tired. But take those signals to heart if they start happening very, very repeatedly. Sleep deprivation is a big, big thing. So sleeping well, making sure that you align yourself with your own clocks. I know some magical human beings who can sleep four to five hours a day. I'm not that person. I need seven to eight hours. Every single time that I'm a long period of time sleeping below seven hours, I notice it. And I can withstand it. I could do a week of four to five hours but immediately I know by the end of the week, I'm really, really tired. I've really not been able to create the space for my brain to fully rest, etc. So although this will depend from person to person, take attention to your sleep. That's sort of the beginning and end of almost everything. If you sleep poorly, we'll share some hacks later on, but maybe it's time to do a sleep study to think through how do you get better sleep, go to bed earlier, eliminate all these inputs from things around you. Again, we'll go back to hacks later, so I don't want to dive too much into it right now, but there's definitely a lot of things around it. And so we talked about being tired, not sleeping enough. You mentioned being snappy and aggressive. And maybe on the sleeping part, I notice clearly and at least these days, less than six hours in a row, it's definitely not good for me. So I know that seven hours, safe bed, but less than six, definitely a danger zone. I always point back people to a study from the US Navy long time ago. Basically, they were trying to assess how pilots were effective and how much sleep they needed to be effective. And in that study, there was a very clear line that four hours and a half of sleep was the absolute bare minimum for a human being to basically be able to do his activity in a proper way. So I'm always highlighting that to people, never go there, <laughs> never go there. Yes. Because you cannot sustain it and it's proven. And we've had all these experiences probably in college when we were doing all-nighters to study for stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Your brain isn't quite as capable afterwards. I remember when I was at McKinsey, I don't know, I think I was relatively beloved as a leader because of that, because I always made a point of making sure that people, we work very hard, we work very long hours, right? But working 90 to 100 hour weeks, the whole banking thing, some of the top end management consulting when projects are very short or engagements are very short, doesn't work. And we all know this for a fact, your brain isn't as capable, like halfway through the week, your brain isn't as capable the next day 
And so creating space for people to actually rest and do other things that are not work is vital. It's actually a characteristic of performance. 90 to 100 hours generates worse performance. Yes, you can do so much with just only 80 hours a week. So <laughs> <laughs> You're joking, but some people think like that, right? I'm joking, but I know I had period in my life where I had to be 80 to potentially 90 plus hours a week. I think it can be sustainable over one month period if you really have no other choice. But my point would be that it better be worth it. And I would say a lot of engagements from my perspective don't qualify. It has to be for more important uh, reason. And I think at 80 should probably be the limit. My extreme, I think we pulled, this was back in my days at Deloitte Consulting. I think we pulled, there was one particular project where we were probably three to three months and a half in hardcore 90 to 100 hour modes, right? Oh, wow. And that was just very telling. It was telling to me, it was telling about the whole team. There were stupid mistakes happening all the time, issues in the modeling. And the project in the end went extremely well. And it turned into a project that was a little bit calmer after that. This ended up being a one-year project. But those first three to three and a half months just illustrated to me how incompetent we may become once we really don't have sleep, rest, good food, meet with friends and family go out of it for a bit. And I think that's informed my whole career. It was very early in my career, to your point you were making earlier. I wanted to become better, faster, quicker. And so the 91 hours didn't make a difference to me. And my colleagues, we were all doing the same. We we're all in the same boat. But honest to God, I can't ever do this again. This doesn't work. This actually just doesn't work. What I believe uh, for me, though, is that, especially early on in your career, I mean, it's if you don't put in the hours, at some point, there is no way you're going to break out from the back in a way. So I certainly believe you have to put some hours, especially in your 20s. But there is a fine line. At some point, that line, you end up doing so much that you could just end up in burnout. And you might get sick of it. I've heard stories of people who, you know, collapse in the subway, for instance. So you really want to make sure you don't cross that line. And I would feel that the 90 plus hours a week in, uh, for three months is definitely crossing a line. And I think you probably want to adjust to the situation. Are we talking about the survival of your company, of your firm, of your country? <laughs> Are we talking about, yeah, doing some accounting exercise? And um, I think it's important to understand where, where we stand. I think actually most US presidents at some point, I don't know if it's optional or not, but go through sleep training so they can sleep less hours. It is true that if you have different responsibilities, I heard this in the past, I don't know if it's an obligatory thing or if it's optional. How can you withstand sleeping less hours? I am pretty sure it should involve some use of other things because I can't see just the human body magically adapting to it. I had a professor in college that would sleep four hours a day Every time he was a professor of physics and he seemed like a normal human being when we interacted with him and he was a very kind guy, not snappy at all. So maybe it does work, but my theory is actually it works better for, it depends heavily on your metabolism and with certain metabolisms it works better and certain people it will work better. I think it's heavily specific on a few individuals. It might be biology, but... So to your point, horses for courses, depends on the time you're at. We'll come back to this concept later on, the quality of time, the quality of hours piece, Right. One hour is not worth the same irrespective of what you're doing and how you're doing it. One hour can be worth as much as three or four hours of someone else or something done in a different way. So I've long been an apologist of that, that we need to be better and smarter. In some ways, what we do at Chameleon is also very entrenched in this and the use of systems and augmentation that allows us to hopefully be more productive and better. Right? And if we're not, then we need to revisit processes and we need to 
revisit how we were playing our time. And I'm saying this with a huge mea culpa. I'm the worst offender. I'm checking emails on weekends. I'm doing other stuff. To your point, if we're entrepreneurs and we're running our own businesses, that's sort of natural. But then creating the space. So how do you deal with it? Creating the space to go out and not do it. And it might be the weekend or it might be a day of the weekend. Sundays, I'm disconnected. It could be vacation. I'm extremely poor at taking vacation over the last few years. I used to be very good at this back in my life, but over the last years, I've become extremely poor at this. And I've been thankful because some of my colleagues, people that I work with say, you have to go, just go do one week out or whatever. And do it properly. If doing it properly encompasses, for example, not checking your email. I did this a couple of weeks ago. I didn't want to fly. So that's the thing. I was like, I fly enough as it is. So I didn't want to go and fly. I said, I'm going to just drive. And so I drove to Mendocino, spent a couple of days with a few friends inland and went to the coast a couple of days later. And the rule I had is no email, no email, no Slack, no messaging. And everyone on the team knew we can reach Nuno. We can just call him or text him. Obviously, nobody did. Thank God. Thank you for that. I appreciate everyone on the team for that. But they always had access to me if something dramatic was happening. Nothing dramatic, fortunately, happened. And then obviously, when I came back, it took me three hours and a half to go through all my emails from that week, right? So that was the cost. But to be very honest, the ability to disconnect, again, it might be different from person to person, but in my experience, you absolutely need to really disconnect. Just go fully offline and say, I'm going to be away from all these things. Because otherwise, you're not fully present there. In my case, I was by myself. Many people, if they go with their significant others, their loved ones, with their families, with their kids, we'll talk about kids in a second. If you're always checking your phone, you're not fully present there. So not only you're not fully working, as you're also not fully there. So it's a bit of a stupid thing. You're not getting rest. You're not spending time with your loved ones, and you're not fully working. So think of it like that. It's a use of your time that is very, very profitable because that will allow you to recharge your batteries. It will allow you to think through things in a different way. And one idea I always comes to mind, I won't say who this is. This was a very senior person, CEO of a very large organization, who once told me this as I was a consultant, and it sort of hit me. And he said, I'm very envious of you guys. And I was like, why would you be envious of us? We're consultants, right? You're the CEO of a massive company. And he said, because you guys have time to think about my business. And for a second, I was like, stagger. I mean, this is a CEO of a large organization, public company. It's like, we have time to think about your business and you don't. You're the CEO. And it's sort of true. It's sort of right. At the end of the day, it's true. If you basically back up your entire week with stuff, back-to-back meetings, calls, etc., you have firefighting in the middle of it. You don't have time to think. So you also have to create time to think, even in your regular schedule. Create a couple of hours to think about your business. Create a couple of hours to think about your people and how you're working through things. Create a couple of hours to think about yourself. It might be one hour a week. It might be 30 minutes a week. It might be two hours a week. It depends on your schedule. But create that space, put it in your calendar, and don't abstain from doing it. It's important not just for your mental health, but it's important for your productivity. Otherwise, you'll end up doing stuff always the same way. You won't do stuff better. And then an hour is an hour. An hour is not three hours because you're not improving your efficiency during that time. Yes, you know, in agreement, everything you are saying, that is definitely a question of learn how to manage yourself. How much sleep do you need? How much work can you sustain? Being overly tired without becoming overly aggressive. I think it's key to learn that. At the same time, I think it's also key to keep the foot on the pedal, especially early on in your career, to in order to make a difference, to go to the next level. It's near impossible without that to, to go to the next level. And we talk already about 
how it depends on your situation, but it will also go back to are you doing stuff that you love, you're intrinsically passionate about? Is it the industry? Is it your function? That are questions that will, of course, have an impact on how you can sustain that or not. There's this saying in Portuguese, I'm just paraphrasing, but it's like that person who runs for passion never gets tired. And I think that is true, right? So again, mm, if you are yeah, yeah. very tired and disappointed and sad, it might not be that you are having necessarily a hardcore mental health issue or you're depressed or whatever. It might be just you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that you are doing the wrong job for yourself that you're in the wrong environment with the wrong people. So don't take everything we're saying as everything is a mental health issue. It's not necessarily. It might be just your externality is the wrong one. And at that point in time, the reassessment has to be a little bit more substantial. Yeah, being able to recognize that it's not the right industry, the right function, and maybe that requires a change because you are lacking the interest or you feel that it's not the skill set you want to keep building on. Actually, the skill sets you, you don't want to acquire at some point. That's quite critical to realize and to learn. And I think that's part of an overall analysis of knowing yourself. And I think it's quite key to know yourself, else you, you won't be able to help yourself and to get the best out of yourself. To finish on this topic of a little bit, when should you stop? When should you go? Agreed on, depends on the time of the life you're in, the role, where you are within that role. Also very important for you to set yourself in that decision itself. And what I mean by that is some people go, 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 or stop, 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 stop. But there isn't clarity on why they're going and there isn't clarity why they're stopping. So if you're saying I'm going, 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 you're going towards what? What's the ultimate objective? And we all know that you can have as many goals as you want, and it might be that you might not attain them. So again, I'll go back to something I've probably said before. The value is in the journey rather than necessarily the end game and out outcome. The outcome and the game, once you get there, you probably just have another one that you want to go for. But do have objectives. Do have goals in mind. Do have things that you want to withdraw or take out of it. I had this really fundamental, interesting piece. I won't say at which company, but it was many, many moons ago, many years ago. And I remembered every time that I would work the 80, 90, 90, 100 hours a week, I would be more snappy. I would be more aggressive, et cetera. Somehow magically, and this is in the same organization, my evaluations were systematically worse when I worked more hours. I'm not saying this is true of everyone and this is true of whatever, but I noticed that was my pattern. I would work more hours. I'd piss more people off. And I would be more judgmental. I'd be like, I'm working all these hours and you're not. And I'm pulling all this weight and whatever. And systematically, my evaluations were worse than when I stepped back a little bit, worked less hours. But I had sort of the frame of mind to be, for example, kinder to my colleagues, which seems like an obvious thing. But if you're working 90 to 100 hour weeks, kinder to your colleagues might not always be top of mind, right? So <laughs> you're in survival mode. So just thinking through that, thinking through why are you doing what you're doing? What is the goal? What would get you closer to that goal? And being very strategic about that is helpful. Always knowing, as I mentioned before, that the value is in the journey, right? Then the outcome is what it is. And to be clear, we're not talking about how you should manage people. I'm not saying you should force people to work this longer, this extremely long hours. It's a question of what is it that you want to achieve in your life? How much efforts are you willing to put into it? And are you putting too much efforts into it? Maybe to talk about support systems. I mean, obviously you can talk to some professionals. You can talk to advisors, uh, team members, family. I don't know how much you want to talk to board members about some issues. So that's always a question. 
Yeah. So talk to people you trust fundamentally. It could be professionals. We'll talk about coaches later on, advisors, a family, obviously. Some team members, again, you have to be a little bit cautious, right? Colleagues, etc. Really be sure that there is trust implied and that both parties are sort of aligned. I've been very blessed. I've been a board member in companies where people shared with me precisely this, precisely like I remember a founder, again, won't go into names, but the founder called me on a Friday saying, I'm depressed. Okay. Then we need to have a conversation, right? And I was a board member. I mean, too core. So there wasn't some funky relationship in any way. I was just a board member, an investor, just, I think, confided me enough to have that conversation. And we had a conversation. I listened mostly to him. And at the end of that conversation, I told him, look, don't take this the wrong way, but this weekend, you're not going to check any emails, any message. Oh, no, no, nothing, zero. It's an obligatory thing. <laughs> no emails. <laughs> I'm going to check on you. So I'm going to check in the team if you sent anything <laughs> out. If you check anything out, I will check on you. And so obviously made a bit of a joke out of it. You need to rest. That's the first thing you need to do. And once you rest, you need to think a little bit and figure out if this is depression or something else. And it actually it was interesting because in this case, it wasn't really depression in the sense we'd give it to him. Is he was getting frustrated at his co-founder. He felt, again, to that point that he was pulling the 80-90 hour weeks, but his co-founder wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, this was a good ending. He ended up actually having a good discussion with his co-founder. His co-founder admitted that he wasn't as focused on the business as he was in terms of time allocation. He ended up leaving the company over time, stayed on the board for a few years. So it was actually the right solution. But again, very uncommon that you will have these discussions with your board members. <laughs> I felt very blessed when that's the case. I've had a few of these in my career. They're more uncommon than common. But just mostly make sure that you can trust the person you're talking to and that that person then go and talk to another board member or say, oh, this might be not the right CEO or that person might be talking to you or one of your colleagues or talking to your boss or affecting your evaluation or how you're seen by others around you. Obviously, you have to be relatively cautious on how you do this. So obviously, there is a big axis, your family, your family life. How do you manage your spouse? How do you manage your kids? That's really a big question because it's not just managing yourself, obviously, it's managing expectations of others. Your kids might not understand. Your spouse might understand or might not. She might know what it is to be in a high-stress environment. She might be herself, uh, himself, in a high-stress environment. So that's a big part of the discussion. Do people understand where you are? Are they trying to help you in that situation? Or are they dragging you in the opposite direction? It's even more stressful for you, putting long hours on one side, but in a, not in agreement with your spouse. Do you have time for your kids? Do you see your kids? Do they see you? Do they miss you? That's a big question. I believe quite a few folks, especially with COVID, uh, realized that how much travel was taking a toll on them, suddenly <laughs> being stuck at home for 12 months, 24 months. I think quite a lot of people realize that maybe there is better ways to do your job, more efficient ways to do your job where you can see more your family. I remember some friends telling me how careful they were not to travel as much as possible during the weekend to have time with their family. And I think that that's really key. You need to have a supportive spouse and you need to make time for your spouse as well as for your kids. If you don't do that at some point, you are going to miss a big thing in life. So first things first, kids always win. I have no kids, but kids always win. And we just had this magical moment a few minutes ago in our recording 
which I hope actually Bertrand puts part of the outtake in. If not, you listeners, you send us messages and tell us that he needs to get you the outtake of his daughter interrupting our recording. <laughs> and she's the coolest. So basically, kids always win. And I think that's what we realized with COVID because we're at home and then kids are like, I do not care about what you're doing. I will interrupt you whenever I want. <laughs> <laughs> and I will just do whatever needs to be done. And I would add... Rightfully so, rightfully so. And this is where we get to sort of the gist of the discussion around the axis of family. With family, you should be present and you should be aware and you should be there. And sadly, I don't have kids. Also, very sadly, I am no longer married and I'm Catholic. I'm a big believer in the sacrament of marriage. So for me, this is particularly painful, but be present. I felt in particular when I was married and in the relationships that I've been in, that it's actually crucial to be present, to be there. It might be the dinner once you arrive from a very tiring day. It might be that weekend that's a bit messy because you have something you need to do even for work. It might be something altogether, but just being present and aware, disconnecting from your phone, trying to really engage with your family, trying to listen to what they have to say and being part of that piece is it. And this is the part that's fascinating to me because you'll ask a lot of people And I think the large majority of people you ask, why are you working so hard? They'll probably say something like, I want to be successful or I want to make money or I want to be better at what I do. But at some point in that conversation, the majority of people will tell you, I want to do this so that I can have a better life for myself and for those around me or for my loved ones. It might be my spouse. It might be my kids. What's the point of working like hell and then not dedicating that time to the kids and to your spouse and being present, etc. It sort of defies the purpose because the outcome is already there. The outcome is already the time you're spending with your family. And so if you're not spending quality time with your family because you're working on something magical that will make your family much happier, guess what? That's not probably going to happen. So spend that time thoughtfully. It's not big things. It's not about going to do trips and changing the world. It might be for some, but normally it's not. It might be those five minutes or those 15 minutes that you get out of your laptop or your phone and your kid is bugging you and you're like, you know what? Okay, I'm going to spend time with you. Let's go do some stuff. It might be having some rules. It might be I'll always, and I am super respectful of that. When we have team members or people that work with us that tell us, look, need to take care of my kid. We have dinner together. Put him or her to bed. Absolutely. That's priority number one. I mean, I used to have the joke with my clients when I was back at McKinsey when their spouses would call, be it wives or be it husbands. And I always used to say, real boss, right? And they're like, yes, and we would laugh. But it's true. It is the real boss. And that's how it should be. So again, access of family for me is vital. It also includes blood family, brothers and sisters and mother and father. It is very, very important that this is taken care of properly. And this is not coming from a place of someone who knows it all. I'm I've lived outside of my country for 20 years. I haven't lived close to my blood family for 20 years of my life. But when you are with them, try and be there. Try and be present. No excuses. Try and be there and try your best. Yes, I'm like you. I've been living far from my blood family for um, many years now, trying to count maybe not 20, but not too far from 20. It's a long time. It's not the most easy part of living um, life somewhere else from where you come from. It's the most difficult, probably made even more difficult during COVID when you couldn't even travel to see them. But yeah, you have to manage that. You have to listen to them and you have to find the support you need given your situation. And as you say, you cannot just be working for a magical ending at some point in your life. At some point, you have to be there for the moment, for the present. 
because that's what your family, your kids are looking for. And it will be too late at some point. That's a key point of the game. There's a part where it gets even more complicated, which is what if your coworker or co-founder or the person you work with is actually your family, right? Your spouse, brother, sister, mother, father, etc. We just invested in a company that's led by the daughter and the father is the co-founder. I mean, that's the first for us. We've invested obviously in spouses where the co-founders are spouses. In my experience, things work well if there are boundary conditions. If you establish either rules or some sort of alignment on what constitutes personal time versus professional time, what boundaries can you not cross, and you still treat each other as a spouse or as siblings or whatever in a different way than you would within that work environment. This is art rather than science. I've never seen perfectly how this works. I've seen some people that do this really well and create those spaces and create that ability to, okay, we go to work and now it's not work. Otherwise, it's in particular, it's a co-founder situation, it's a startup, it's all-encompassing all the time, and it's too much. I can say that we've invested in several, or I've invested in several founding teams that were spouses, and nobody divorced or broke up during the time that we were investors in the company or while the company existed. I only know of one couple that broke up years later. So I think that's a good track record, and that's what's meant to be, that for some reason, we think that's the right person to do this business with us. And there might be some incredibly valid reasons in terms of skill sets, ability, accomplishments, etc. But that we have that ability to sort of a little bit create these boundaries, the ability to do then something else that is outside of, of the work realm. Yeah, if it's truly co-founders and you build on each other's strengths and you are on a similar levels of expertise, maybe different expertise, but at similar level, it might be definitely easier. What I've not seen working so well is a situation where you bring some family members down the line and they might not be to the same uh, level that's needed and it might not work. Some people in the team might be resentful, might be visible at board level that there is an issue and it creates some tough discussion. I would say in general, I, I've seen situations where it seems to work really well when both parties are really equal and really co-founder, but if that's not the case coming later down the line and not the same level, I think that can be an issue if you don't carefully drive this. But I've seen more situations where people overestimate the ability of their family member and create issues, unfortunately. It's difficult to make it work. If you can make it work, it might be magical, but it's difficult to make it work. Yes. Do it thoughtfully. And obviously, again, if you're separating the realms, like we're blood family or we're family versus we're co-founders or co-workers, at some point, the co-worker, co-founder relationship might not work. If you're a blood family, then it is what it is, right? So, so again, having that ability to have honest conversations and saying this is not working and how can we sort it out is also pretty important. Otherwise, you'll end up becoming uh, the next succession series on TV or at least <laughs> an elements that can be fictionalized into that. Moving into other axes, obviously, maybe we can go a little bit more rapid fire. Friends and having time for friends and doing things with friends. Hobbies is what I call time normally for yourself. It might be that in your hobbies, you involve your family or you involve friends. And I actually, the sports I do, one is a little bit individualistic because I'm inside a car driving. There's really nobody else with me. Maybe I could have friends who go racing with me as well. And now I have friends at the track that became friends after I started racing, I guess. Uh, table tennis, is also a sport that's a little, it's one against one or two against two. So obviously time for yourself, but it could be times for you to connect with others. And the immediate thing that comes to mind that is last, but definitely not the least, is spirituality and religion, right? Obviously, if you're a spiritual person or if you're religious and you have religious practices, that takes 
an important part of your time. I am, as I mentioned before, Catholic. I am not only a practicing Catholic, but I do have daily norms and routines that I follow in my life, like going to Mass, for example, on a daily basis, which is a little bit uncommon. We see some people doing it, but it's a little bit uncommon. And for me, that's very important. It's a very important routing of my day and how I do things. And I know for other people, it might be something else. It might be their meditation in a broader sense of what meditation is and spirituality. So there's a lot of other axes that you should think about as ways to get a little bit back onto your work-life balance. And they're also flag posts. They're also posts that tell you how well you're doing. If you have no time for anything, if you have no hobbies, if you the last time you met your friends was three months ago, you could be or not spiritual, who knows? But if all of that is your work, then maybe there's something there that needs to be corrected. There may be something there that doesn't quite work out. And you want to be careful because work might disappear, the work might change, the team might change. So if you put too much, absolutely too much into it, it might be at some point a very rude awakening. And so you want to be careful the day you wake up. So that's why I, I agree with you. You need to cultivate this other axis. France, it's easy to catch up even remotely if that's your best option. I'm a big believer in hobbies, either hobbies that are potentially connected to what you do for work or not, so that you have something else totally different to focus on. Personally, myself learning to fly, that's my hobby for the past 12 months. And I think that's very helpful to have something else, another rock in your life that you focus on that gives you some uh, stability in case anything happens. So I think there is real value to invest in these directions. And you have to pick what feels important to you and what you connect the most to. And sometimes these hobbies or the conversations with friends or your spirituality is what gives you perspective, the ability to think higher level, to look at your life more broadly than just the work. I think the point you were making, Bertrand, is pretty vital. Work can't be everything because it is not an even relationship. In some ways, at some points, it becomes parasitic, right? Mm -hmm. There's a parasite. In most cases, it becomes parasitic towards the employer, right? So that like the company if that's an entity where you're giving maybe too much of you, but it might be the other way around. It might be that it becomes too parasitic towards the employee because the person is not doing a lot of work and they're doing whatever and they're just chilling, etc. This episode is obviously clearly not for those people, but it could be that it's the other way around. And I think once a relationship with your work, with your company, with your work environment becomes parasitic one way or the other way, it's time to probably leave or time to think through what else is there for you. Because there's something wrong. There's something wrong about that relationship. And again, we are made to work. We are told we're made to work even spiritually and religiously. We've read that. So it's not like work is, oh, this hassle thing. I prefer not to work. I think most of us are in this field of we actually want to work. We want to gain something out of it. Some of us love it. Some of us might like it. But at the end of the day, work can't be it. There is something around it that is more important in some ways, which is sort of your arch or your arc of life. And I believe strongly in one thing is that work, the company, is not your family. I personally cannot stand companies that talk being a family for employees. For me, that's sad. That's wrong. If you're a company, you want to have a team. And it's a team because you want to bring the best people to the team. You want them to work well in, towards a common goal. And at some point, maybe at different company stage, company growth, change of strategy, potentially you have to reorganize. You might have to let some people go. You don't let people go from your family. <laughs> I don't think that's how it's working. But in your company, that's what might happen. And I feel that maybe in tech in 2022, 
people started to realize that there was a lot of bullshit from a lot of companies who were talking about being a family and this and that to the point where the shit hits the fan and suddenly there is no family anymore. There is layoff after layoff. And that's really unfair. That's a bad environment to make people believe in something that does not exist, is not real. But unfortunately, I saw a lot of companies playing that game and people willingly embracing that story. Bertrand knows I have a slightly <laughs> different view on this. Maybe in the nuance, the difference. I agree with this notion that your company is not your family. Right? And most companies are organizations where you spend a lot of time and obviously they can't be your family. It might be, and it happens in certain cases, there are relationships that are formed within your work environment that are certainly friendship relationships. And in some cases, they might be almost like family relationships. I sort of, the way I work, and certainly in the organizations that I've been a founder of rather than I just joined. I used to work at McKinsey, but I joined McKinsey. But the organizations that I've helped co-found and that I've been working on, there is a notion of us, we really try and take care of each other. Now, is it clear that we're not family? Most of the time it's clear we're not family, but we will do things that are a little bit familial in how things get done. And it's a bit of a two-edged sword, right? On the one hand, it's very positive because people can be a little bit more open about the issues they're going through. On the negative side, obviously, there's also a lot of expectations from everyone involved that you'll do right by them. It depends on the size of your organization, I believe. It depends on the scalability of the organization. It depends on the people. Ultimately, I have been in organizations that had very strong family-like ties. At worst, I'd say friendship ties. I mean, I'll give an example, and this was not even my organization. I joined an organization as the second person in a team, and the person who led that, that department, that team, is still someone that I consider almost like a second father, not just a mentor, but someone like... I went to his 50th birthday, flew over just to go to his 50th birthday in a different continent, because, of course... If he ever asked for anything relating to his kids or his wife or himself or whatever, I would do it. It's more nuanced. I, it depends, is how I would say it. I wouldn't be saying, oh, it's tough, it doesn't work. And I, I don't think it's opposite at all. What you are describing is not a relationship with a company. You didn't go to the 50s of this company. You went to an individual and this is different. So I'm not saying you cannot have friendship and build friendship. You cannot have a strong spirit of camaraderie, of friendship. Of course you can. And of course the best companies generate that. I'm talking about when companies are purposefully trying to position themselves as being your alternate family. I think it's the wrong word and the wrong approach to it. Another extreme, sometimes I feel some companies are trying so hard to embrigate you that it starts to feel a bit like a cult. That's also something I would be personally worried when companies try to take all your life and potentially trying to take place of your spiritual life in some ways by being close to a cult. And we all know some startups uh, that were run close to that. I always believe that people have to be careful. There needs to be some limit on uh, how strong you push things forward. And especially the younger people, they might be more easily impressionable and might believe a bit too much some stuff. So I think it's important to put some limits. But of course, personal friendship between people, it's a very different story from something that is too organized, choreographed by a company. So in shocking news, we fully agree then. There's no disagreement. And I agree with everything you said. Obviously, you have to be thoughtful about the more junior team members, the younger, the less experienced, and how do you influence them and how do you work with them. And knowing this is a very inexact science, I mean, obviously, you try your best and sometimes you don't do greatly, but hopefully over time you get better at it. Moving to the, the key question, maybe on many of your minds, those listening to us, is work-life balance possible? And 
stick on the ground as always. I think it is. There's a few levers and elements that are very valid and that are very important. We discussed some of them already, right? Horses for courses, the time and period of your life that you're in, the stage at which you're in within the realm of the company that you're in and the job that you're doing. All of those things have importance and all those things define how your boundaries change and how they can change one way or the other. Maybe it's more time to work and much less time to life. Maybe at some point you start balancing it a little bit more. It's taking time off. It's acknowledging that you need to take time off. Weekends, ideally, at the very least. Vacation. Time uh, during the week outside of your working hours to meet with people or to do something that you like or a hobby. All of that is pretty important. I'll go back to a topic I've mentioned before, which is the key, in my opinion, to how you get the most out of your performance in job. Quality of time. This is incredibly difficult. The ability to do in one hour the work that would take otherwise someone else or yourself more hours to do is essential. I've always been someone who believes that FaceTime is absolutely not the right thing. It's great that people meet once in a while. It's great that they interact in person. But just being there mm. for 12 or 14 hours just to show you're working is a stupid, idiotic thing. For sure. People should be measured on their accomplishments. Mm-hmm on what they deliver, and on the quality of what they deliver. Then the time, you'll start figuring out, okay, that person's a bit faster, that person's a little bit slower, is this higher quality, lower quality, etc. But measuring your professional life in that sense, have I executed the way I wanted, is vital. This is not easy. It's something that you systematically need to iterate. I've been working for 27 years, and for example, I believe right now I'm at a stage where there's pieces of my calendar that are very inefficient that are, I'm not really delivering the value I should at, in those times. There's others where I'm super efficient, so that's hopefully a good news. But at the end of the day, going back to the drawing board, reassessing how do you improve those times, are there processes that you can get better at? Are there people that you can leverage better? For example, if you're a manager, are you managing in the right way? Are you empowering people to do stuff or are you getting micromanagerial on everything? I tend to be a bit helicopter in how I manage sometimes. I'm very high level and then I go very deep. So I try to sometimes stop myself from that. It's like, okay, no, no, this is yours. You do it, okay? And if there's some quality assurance that needs to be done, we'll get to that. But ultimately, the ability to use an hour in a manner that is efficient for high quality outcomes is the essence of this game. That's how you get work-life balance over time. Yes, that's a huge point. And myself, I remember hiring people and what you are targeting to achieve is a better use of your time. If you hire people and after a few months of a ramp up, you get a better life <laughs> because stuff is done better, faster, more efficiently, and you have to spend less time on it, then it's success. If you are just spending more time managing, or I would call it nano-managing people and going too much in the weeds, then that's a huge problem. You are probably not saving time. So that's for me how you, I mean, a big part of the game is improve your process or hire the right people, but you need step-by-step step to improve how you work. That's a critical part of the game and hiring the right people and firing if they are not the right people, as well as optimizing your process is a key part of the game. I want to stress again as well, you really have to match your period in life with the type of company and the stage they are at, as well as the position you are taking. You want to be really careful that the two are well aligned. I remember how many times I had to tell people, hey, maybe this is not the right thing for you because of the stage we are at and because of the stage you are at in your life. 
different stage in your life, different stage for us as a business or this entity would be a perfect match, but this is not the case. So <laughs> either you change and you switch, but maybe there is no reason for you to change because this is your stage in your life and you cannot change it and you don't want to change it. But the company also has some obligations to other team members, to your clients, to your shareholders. So you really have to match the two. Unfortunately, so many issues are because you are matching the wrong time in your life with the wrong stage for the company. It is important to make this distinction around, you'll often listen from your friends, your colleagues or others, this notion of work-life balance. And there's the case for yes, and there's the case for no. And the case for yes is many times done by people that have created very clear boundaries in their career and how they work, etc. But it might also be made by people like myself, where there's sometimes a tenuous line like work and life where I'm checking emails on weekends and stuff, but it doesn't affect me naturally, right? I still believe I'm resting on a Sunday, right? Although I might check a couple of emails. And so the case for yes and for no, I believe is actually shockingly enough in the eye of the beholder. And I'm going to be extreme here, but it's like, you could literally just switch to, I actually have work-life balance without doing tons of changes. And I know people like some of you that might be listening, like, mate, I'm doing 80 to 90 hour weeks right now. It might be tweaks. It might be little things that you're doing. It might be that you fully accept that this is the time to Bertrand's point that you are doing the 80 to 90 hours. And maybe in three months time or in six months time, it will not be the time for you to be doing that. And accepting that is very, very vital. I've seen people that come to me with what I call the kumbaya answers of, oh yeah, of course, work-life balance. I live in Bali and I go all around the world. And, and I'm like, great for you. It's wonderful <laughs> that you can do that and that you still feel you're efficient. And I know people that actually are efficient doing this. There's nothing wrong about it. But when you listen to these stories, never forget, it's in the eye of the beholder. It's like the empty glass are full mindset. If you frame it in a way that works for you, the case for yes and no is really your mindset choice. It's shocking, but it is. I did something, it was a bit of a strange exercise when I was back at McKinsey. Not the easiest place to have a discussion on work-life balance, I can tell you. But I used to do this exercise, I may have mentioned it in the past, where I would absolutely disconnect my BlackBerry. We had BlackBerry and mobile phone. I would absolutely disconnect my BlackBerry on Friday evenings. I think normally 8 p.m. That was my cutoff. And I would turn it back normally late Sunday or Monday morning, depending on my week and what was happening. And everyone had my phone number. And I told everyone everywhere, if you need anything, if it's urgent, just call me. In six years I was at the firm, zero calls during the weekend. Okay? And if you then ripple that back to your teams or the people that you work for or the people... If you create a system by which people understand how you work, it sort of works. Now, again, back to the point Bertrand has made throughout today's episode fully. It depends which stage of your life you're in. I would do this and you're like, well, you didn't work for two days. Well, most of the year I wouldn't work for two days, right? Which I was sort of entitled to or a day and a half. But then I wouldn't make my teams work for two days. This applied to everyone. Now, part of my life at that point in time and Bertrand knows this because that's when we probably met, I was on a plane all the time. I was all over the world. So for example, I might be on a project in Korea or an engagement in Tokyo. And guess what? I would go until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. many nights working with a team. There would be nobody in the room. We'd leave together, okay? I would pull in still 60, 70 hours, sometimes even more, okay? But I had a boundary condition. I had the rule. 
And again, that rule in the hire of DP holder meant I had work-life balance. It created some other sorts of issues. Then people thought I had a good life. I was like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> but if you create those rules for yourself, for your teams, for the people that you report to as well, if you create these boundary conditions, I remember having this discussion vividly. She's still a very good friend of mine. She was someone who worked for me as an engagement manager in a project. And she was overworking. I mean, clearly overworking. And at a certain point in time, what we had to do was not just tell her, you can't work these hours. We need to leave at this time. As we, as partners on the team, actually had a rule. And I remember I wasn't the only partner. There was another co-partner. No, we call it engagement director at McKinsey back then. So I was the other co-engagement director. I told the other co-engagement director, you do not send any emails to her during the weekend. Zero. <laughs> and it's like, what you mean? It's like, whatever. Schedule, send. Do whatever you need to do. Put it in your draft. Send it on Monday morning. No. And it's, truthfully, I think it changed how this person worked. Back to our point that we made at the beginning, it made this person more efficient. It made this person even more thoughtful by actually working less hours, shockingly enough. That's the type of stuff we need to do more and more, I think, in today's work environment. Just FaceTime is BS. It's a really, really, really bad metric. Yes, and obviously there are different types of businesses. Huh? If you take professional services business, at the end of the day, you are billing hours. The more hours you do, the more you can achieve as a business. If you're a product company, it's a very different story. You can optimize time very differently. It's a very different game, I believe, as a product company versus a professional services type of business. But you have limited of billings as well. I don't know any professional services firm that can charge more than 40 hours per person. And McKinsey wasn't even 40 hours. I think it was 35 the hours that we could charge. And I can tell you, we didn't work 35 hours a week, right? So we were not French. <laughs> so, so I don't know, was it 35? It was, it was some funky number. It was not 40. We work more hours than the hours we can bill. I mean, now, do some firms do funky things around double billing? I don't know. Maybe some do, right? Where a professional might be charging, I don't know, 80 hours a week, but to different organizations, who knows? But, but in principle, you shouldn't do that type of stuff. That's just not kosher at all, right? So you're still always working more than the 40 hours. I have no doubt about that. And unfortunately, professional services is probably one of the worst offenders. I think together with very early stage startups in that environment, they're top of the list for me. It's like where you work really nasty hours. Maybe, obviously, within professional service, I would put investment banking, just to be clear, not just consulting, right? Law firms, I mean, work stupid hours. Yeah. Yeah, I guess startups, uh, the difference is that there might be light at the end of the tunnel for people involved. But yeah, that's probably the big difference. It's not by design. I think at the end of the day, we talk briefly about it, but if you do what you love, it's much easier on you. Of course, the risk of if you do what you love, <laughs> you, you do even more of it. But it's for sure more sustainable when it's fully aligned with what you are doing. And that's why it's key to basically pick a company, a business where, where you feel very aligned because either it's the right industry for you, because it's the right company mission, because it's a vision that's exciting you, because you can go in a function you were dreaming to get into. But I think that part is really critical. Do what you love. It should make your life balance much easier. And I agree with that. I believe the biggest risk when you're doing that, this is, I think, John Dorowicz used to mention this as sort of the missionary founder versus the mercenary founder. The danger is that you go too far off the deep end where you're working too many hours, doing too many things. Yeah. For those who love what they do, and I think, Bertrand, you'd love what you do. I love what I do. The challenge is always like, when is it a bit too much? Back to our question earlier, like, should we step back now? Should we do stuff and, and do something else? But it is honest to God, a blessing when you get to do what you actually love, when there is fulfillment. I often ask this from my friends, what percentage of your work time 
if you put all your work time, checking emails, calls, whatever, are you happy in? It's just a measure level of happiness. It's very rare, in particular when I'm talking to people in corporate life, to see people that are above 50%. Yeah, that's a very good metric, actually. Above 50% is very rare. People above like 70, 80% is extremely rare. <laughs> in startup life, it's a bit more mixed. You'll find all sorts of types, even in its irrespective of founders and and team members and stuff, you'll see very high and very low and anything in between. But but you should be aiming at least at about 50%. If your work is not making you happy, I don't know, 60, 70% of your time, there's sort of something wrong with it. Um, and if you have a chance to change it, if you have a chance to change what it is, work on it, change it. If you're doing a lot of things you shouldn't, or your team is, change it. That's a game, yeah. Either changing change it because you have the direct authority to change it, hire the right people, change processes, or because you are going to try to change position or to adjust your responsibilities, or because you are going to change company, you need to make sense of it. And I like this metric, the percentage of hours, your work hours that you enjoy or not. And, and I think that's a key point. I would say that you talk even founders, I think sometimes founders have to do a lot of stuff that either they don't like or they are not skilled for. Because you are the founder and you have to do stuff that no one else can do or is willing to do sometimes. So I, I can see that. But again, if you are the founder, you should have the ability to change the process, to change the people, and as a result, get quickly out of a bad situation. But that's, um, I think, a key metric. You absolutely need to check on that, get that pulse. I don't see how anyone will not feel worse and worse if you are in a situation where you are below 50% of enjoyment of what you do. I was 90% a year, year and a half ago. I'm no longer at 90%. I'm working on it now, but I'm certainly well above 50, so that I'm still happy. Who do you go to? How do you decide these things? We've already talked about the family, friends, potentially colleagues, very difficult, but also not impossible board members. Uh, coaches. Obviously, the world is now filled with life coaches, executive coaches, and a bunch of people around you will have had great experiences with this. Some may have had less good experiences. Again, be very thoughtful on the person you choose to work with. You're going to share a lot of very personal things. Be careful on how you frame the relationship, what you expect from that relationship as well. I've been very, very blessed to have been not only a mentor and an investor and all of those things, but also a coach in my career where I just literally supported entrepreneurs. And it is incredibly fulfilling. We have the case of Bill Campbell, who passed away a few years back, who was known as the coach and who was so vital into so many of the big companies of Silicon Valley. It is a blessing when people share with you their most intimate pieces. Choose uh, coaches that are appropriate to you. It might be someone that you want that is really more focused on your ability to manage your company and the day-to-day -day of your business. And that's a specific type of coach. What we usually used to address as executive coaches now, it seems like the term has been a little bit bastardized. There's more of the full-on holistic life coaching, which is about all your life, all-encompassing, also focusing on your personal aspects, almost ending up in full-on therapy. Uh, there are actually uh, people that are therapists, so don't forget that. If you need psychiatric help, there are psychiatrists, but if you need someone that is certified as a therapist, go after those types of talents, not just people like myself, who obviously can be helpful, but I am not certified in anything. I'm not an MD for sure. And I'm definitely not certified in, in therapy. Again, choose the right people for you. And the final piece of the puzzle here is for those who have obviously some 
spiritual notions or religious notions. There's other types of people that you obviously can talk to. In the Catholic Church, for example, we talk about, assuming other Christian religions as well, spiritual direction. So a spiritual director in Catholic Church is normally a priest who can help you. And it's not just for confession, but someone that you basically share what's going on in your life. And you talk about, in this case, other things like supernatural life and other things that are a little bit more esoteric for some of you that might be listening to us today. So at the end of the day, really find the right people that can help you in the several dimensions of your life and create that vulnerability, obviously thoughtfully, not with the first person you meet, but create that vulnerability over time. Create that connection, that dialogue over time. It can be extremely, extremely helpful. But be very cautious. This is the last thing I will say on this topic, which is it can be used in the wrong way. It can affect you in the wrong way, and it can throw you off a tangent, right? You could be in a case of having over-therapy or getting wrong advice. So just be thoughtful as everything in life. Listen, triangulate. You'll have friends. You'll have family. You'll have other people that you can talk to and make your own decision. Don't just trust what people are doing for you. All these gurus out there, just be thoughtful on what you listen to and what decisions you take out of it. That would be my last point. I totally agree. I think that at some point to get help and to find the right type of help, depending on what is the issue at stake. Personally, I've seen uh, definitely some value from executive coaches for myself, but also for some team members of the team. And if they are not executive, you have coaches as well that you can deploy for managers, for instance. And so... All of this is not true across different geographical regions. Obviously, the U.S. is different from Europe, and parts of Europe are different from each other, and parts of Asia are different from each other. The U.S., when I first moved here, two-week vacation seemed to be the norm. Three-week vacation, 15 days. China, when I moved there, I think it was 15 days, if I'm not mistaken, as well. The U.S. is funny. It's <laughs> we work in tech, so now I'm in Silicon Valley. We're a little bit like there's a Netflix model where you have unlimited vacation, whatever that means. And Yes, I was going to say it's a, you have unlimited vacations in the U.S. We have unlimited vacation at Chameleon. So if my Chameleon <laughs> colleagues are listening to me, it's like, what the hell, right? Yeah, the U.S. is still one of the worst. People are like, they feel very bad when they take one week vacation. Two, three, some do... That said, as we work in tech and venture capital, it's becoming more of a thing that people take more time off. I've heard of a VC firm that shall go unnamed that gives eight weeks a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> eight weeks. I will not say their name. They have some fixed vacation time. So there are times where they just shut off, right? A couple of weeks a year. Wow. I remember firms that did this in Europe as well, around summer and around winter, around Christmas and Thanksgiving, etc. But in general, the norm is still that U.S. takes tax vacation. People are very thoughtful about taking vacation. That said, I believe August is becoming a thing. It wasn't definitely when I first moved here uh, 11, 12 years ago. August, now it's difficult to do business in certain parts of August, certainly in Silicon Valley. It's slower, definitely. It feels getting slower in August in the US. It's not dead like in Western Europe, but yeah, it's definitely a thing. In Europe, everyone knows there's quite a lot of vacations. August typically is quite dead. July will be more for the Nordics. I would say typically mid-July to mid-August in Europe, if you want to take a bet, it, uh, it will be very slow going. Of course, as a French person, I have to talk about the 35-hour uh, work week that was established a long time ago now, maybe 25 years ago. I believe it has been a catastrophe. I believe it really poisoned the well. It happened when I was just graduating from engineering school and I was very surprised to notice step by step in just a few years time how many friends who are pretty ambitious wanted to do great things and step by step they were just focused on uh, how they organize uh, their four-day weekends and next four-day weekends, their two weeks vacation, their four weeks vacation. 
it was very shocking how vacation was just becoming the, the goal and in itself versus achieving something. And it has been very shocking. I think it has been really a bad thing. There can be too much of a good thing, basically. And I think that France has been going there. It's really an issue, a mindset. And of course, when you have to deal with friends from outside, it might be a culture shock in some ways. I feel pretty sad about what happened and the fact that it has not been changed after all these years. I mean, there have been tweaks in the system, of course. It's getting probably a bit better, a bit less crazy, but it's really a difference of mindset and it's pretty tough. I believe if you are focused on achieving great things and if you want to, in a way, as we say, change the world, you don't do it with weeks and weeks of vacations. And it's a mix of a couple of things. So it's a mix of work intensity, time of vacation you can take a year. I mean, like Germany, I believe is like 30 days, which is a lot. I was shocked. At holidays. I mean, Europe, I think, is clearly the winner on this, certain <laughs> Europe in particular, in terms of number of holidays a year. US has done better, I think, in last years of having more holidays, I guess. And then the worst are obviously Asia, right? I mean, there's some huge holidays, in particular, if we look at China, Korea, and other countries around Lunar New Year, around other parts of the year. But the work ethic is also very different. I mean, China, many companies, certainly in tech, still do the 996, which I believe we may have talked already in a previous episode. It's 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. I mean, it's like incredible. Korea. As a base. As, as a, a base, base, right? Yes. They only unlock your WeChat ability for you to, to pay for, with WePay, your drive home after 9 p.m. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the weekends, right? In Korea. I mean, Korea, I think, went to five days a week already in the noughties, 2004, 2005, if my memory doesn't totally fool me on that. So these countries have a work ethic, certainly the Far East, in particular, I'd say China and Korea. I'm not bad-mouthing Japan, but I think Japan is sort of in a little bit different echelon in terms of work intensity. And then Southeast Asia varies quite a bit. South and Southeast Asia, if we look at India, Bangladesh, and other countries, the work intensity can be as severe as in the Far East. There's parts, I think, of Southeast Asia where things are a little bit more Europeanized, not fully European, but Europeanized, where you can take some time off, vacation, there are holidays, etc. But I would say, if I had to say work intensity... And I'm really overgeneralizing here. Asia still has a little bit of a, a play on us. In particular, as I said, China and Korea, I think. Just countries where people just work super, super long hours and taking a vacation, holidays, etc. sometimes even frowned upon. One thing I want to say is that when you ask a lot from yourself or from others, you also want to be flexible. For instance, for me, there is nothing worse than expecting a lot of work from people, but at the same time being totally inflexible, like requiring FaceTime, like not letting people work remotely or even work from another country for one month because that's where is their family. I think there are a lot of ways where I think you should be flexible the more you ask from people. I agree. And it's something, to be very honest, that I've long thought in my life. There have been moments, and not for myself, but for the people that work with me, should we give more flexibility, less flexibility? You have to be thoughtful and question when is the right timing for things. But we, in general, over time, going to a more flexible environment is the way to go. So maybe we bring it all together. We bring all of this episode together around work-life balance, mental health, even physical health. We didn't talk about sports much except in hobbies, but physical health is important. What you eat, how much you sleep. We also mentioned the sleeping piece. What you eat is important. Huh? Essential. It's very important. Essential. It changes everything. Your weight, your metabolism, essential. So maybe I'll start, when in doubt, stop. I think just stop and take some time off. If you're hesitating, like maybe I should take some time off, just take it. It's probably a good time to do it. Yeah, stop, take time off. Um, go to people you trust and that can help you. It's really critical that you go to people you can trust. 
figure out through time what works and what doesn't. Horses for courses, different times, different roles, different positions, different organizations, different companies will demand different time allocations from you. And um, I would say already recognize the stage you are in your life, know yourself and adjust based on that. And last but not least, we haven't gone too much in detail on this, but learn how to communicate this to everyone around you, your bosses, the people that work for you, people work around you, your family. Be explicit in some of these conversations. I'm not saying on everything. I'm not saying you need to be fully transparent on everything. But if it is a meaningful structural issue, be clear. Like I'm about to have a kid. I believe I will need at least a month where I'll be a little bit stepping back. But I want to continue working because it's pretty critical in the time that we're in. Can I do that? How can I do that? With your family, say, I'm going to go through a push right now. Is this okay? Is this a good time for me to do this push for the next month? Or I'm going to do two weeks of travel internationally, but then I'll be back for a month. Have these conversations as openly as you can, as transparently as you can. They will benefit in how you interact with others around you. I think it makes sense. And as this concludes our episode 46, we are all in high-intensity jobs and it's really important to get the performance right and at the same time balancing with the other stuff, your family, your friends, your hobbies, so that you can maintain a good, uh, a good balance and that you have to take good care of your physical and mental health. Thank you, Nuno. Thank you, Bertrand. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.